We welcome all of you today, and I'm taking, I normally preach right through a book of the Bible, and that's my, our normal procedure, but today I'm taking a little break to, to look at uh, one of the great prophecies of, about Jesus. Uh, let's see. Uh, this is from Micah 5.2. It says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me. Sometimes you wonder, why did God give us Jesus? You know, we benefit from it, but ultimately it's for his plan. Uh, Just like when the ram was caught behind Abraham as he just was about ready to sacrifice his son, uh, it's God provided for himself the sacrifice. And, and Jesus is to satisfy the wrath of God on our behalf for himself. Amazing, great, glorious mystery. Shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So in, in there, there's a time warp too. He's coming forth but he's from of old. He's from ancient days. He exists eternally, and yet he enters time. So marvelous and so wonderful. So that's Micah 5.2. And so we're going to take some time to think about that today. Let us open with prayer. Thank you, Father, for your grace and kindness. Would you please fill us with, with wonder? Help us to even connect back to the days when we were little. We were six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and Christmas was the absolute ultimate uh, day of expectation, and we were hoping and longing. Uh, f- yes, it was for gifts and and toys and bicycles and trains and dollies and uh, joy and food all of those things, but that, that strong desire for your good gifts. Lord, help us to, to connect that with our love and faith in you and your ultimate, real, lasting gifts today. Through Christ I pray, amen. Well, one of my favorite uh, things about being a father is I go by Father Wren, you didn't know that, did you? That's my handle on eBay, Father Wren. <laughs> I used to be a hospital chaplain, and every once in a while, people, you know, they, oh, you're a clergy, I don't know, do I call you Father Wren? And I'd say, well, yeah, actually, I have nine kids, so, you know, <laughs> it, it works, you know. <laughs> Wait a minute, fathers aren't supposed to have children. <laughs> uh, confusing. But um, one of the nicest things about having kids is that you you broaden your horizon of, of interests. Um, if it weren't for the fact that my wife's dad taught my oldest son how to watch sports on TV between football and baseball, honestly, I never watched sports until my 
father-in-law taught my oldest son that this is really fun. This is really engaging. So now I watch the Super Bowl and the World Series, you know. <laughs> I'm a big fan. <laughs> uh, no, I watch a few more than that or maybe even go to a game, but it, it enriched me. It's like, oh, that's really interesting. And I'm blessed with daughters as well. And one of the things my daughters have brought into my life is the love of uh, professional wrestling. Okay. <laughs> okay, you didn't think I was going to say that. <laughs> I just realized, wait a minute, this is sounding incredibly sexist, but <laughs> forgive me. But the truth is, no, my daughter's brought into my life the joy of, of those British drama romances, okay? Uh, like um, Cranford, that four-part series. Which, uh, how many of you have seen it? Okay, a few of you. I highly recommend it. Um, and part of the line is there's this gorgeous romance. And the line of thinking is there's a new doctor in town, and he's very attractive, and there's the pastor's daughter, who is likely, I mean, likewise very attractive. And and they they eventually fall in love. But a quote-unquote friend of the new young doctor decides to write some valentines to various women in the town of Little Cranford saying essentially, you know, in, in Victorian hinting speech that you're the one for me and they're, and they're all supposedly mysterious. Who did they come from? And all of the women, there's four or five, I guess, three or four or whatever, think, oh, it's got to come from that doctor. He secretly loves me. <laughs> and several of them just assume that, okay, we're engaged. We're definitely getting married now, you know, because I got a mysterious valentine, obviously from the doctor, I presume. Anyway, so it gets, it gets built up to this thing, and like several of these women are assuming they're going to get married to this gorgeous young doctor. And then the, the, pastor, the pastor finds out about this. You're supposedly, you know, promised to my daughter, and you you run out and gotten engaged to three or four other women. <laughs> so of course he, uh, you know, I don't have all the details, but because at this point I stormed out of the room, I couldn't take it anymore. I I, I could not watch that episode for like another eight months. Okay, the same thing happened to my son Jorgen. He and I just hate that episode with a, with a holy passion. We will not watch that. Uh, because the, the whole thing just blows up. But eventually things get ironed out and the right guy ends up with the right girl. And it's gorgeous. Since I have, oh, I don't have a lot of time. I'll throw in one more illustration here. Another amazing series is Little Dorrit. I don't know if you've seen Little Dorrit. It's fantastic. And it's the same kind of thing. It's a romantic drama. There's these two individuals that seem like they might really get along, but they're separated by miles of cultural baggage, etc. And then, and then the whole thing gets topsy-turvy. There's just no way they're ever going to get together. And then finally all the problems are worked out and they get together. And you feel so good. It's the way it should be. I've noticed also a contrast to that. Several modern uh, movies don't end nicely. They end sort of inconclusively. Like, honestly, you come to the end and go, where's the ending? Yeah. 
why don't you resolve stuff here? Or that's not the way it's supposed to end. <laughs> you know, the wrong girl is with the wrong guy here. It's just not right. Uh, an example of that was a huge movie a few years ago, La La Land. Just massive, big movie. And you're thinking, oh, it's going to end this way. And then at the end, it's like, what? What did you do to me? Why did you steal an hour and a half of my time to tell me such a bad story? That's bad writing. <laughs> I mean, I'm serious. I'm a little outraged. Now, now, I admit that life doesn't always end up perfect. <laughs> That's an understatement, right? And in fact, a lot of times in the temporary, life ends up really not not right, not good, sad, and it, everything doesn't come in a little box with a nice little bow on it, right? That's, so it, their message, La La Land, etc., and all those movies that go, they end to go, oh, where's the ending? You know, uh, <laughs> They're actually communicating something accurate as well. Like, you know, I grant them that. If I had a hat, I'd say, you're right, you're right, you're right. Um, but there's something more appealing to writing that brings us to a conclusion and, on the, and the parts of the drama fit together and make sense eventually. And God is such an author. Really, we've been talking about the candle of love. I'm not trying to trivialize this thing, but Christmas is a huge, dramatic, romantic story that's real. <laughs> We're living a real drama that God has written. God has written. And in the story, we have the book that tells us over and over that, you know, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Trust me, these details will make sense. Trust me, I am an amazing author. That's what God says to us over and over again. And so in this big, beautiful drama, we have the prophecy that is before us on the screen. Uh, let's talk about Micah just for a couple of seconds here. First of all, I love the fact that a few weeks ago I, I, I showed you this slide. There's a, a, as you can tell, tell, this man was Alfred Edersheim, and he lived from 1825 to 1889. He was born a Jewish man and converted to Christianity and became a tremendous scholar. His main book is The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. It's a two-volume, wonderful book. And this is what he, and he went and researched all of these rabbis, pre-Christian era rabbis, right? And, and he lists, uh, he says that they, these rabbis, listed 456 separate Old Testament. Now, see, uh, they didn't call it the Old Testament, right? <laughs> they call it the Tanakh. So in the Tanakh, these non-Christian rabbis, right, non-Christian, uh, pre-Christian, uh, found 456 references to the Messiah or to this promised messianic time that is to come. 
um, and that's, that's phenomenal. 456, that's a lot. That's a lot of evidence. And Micah 5, 2 is actually one of the outstanding ones. Uh, Micah was a young man who was born in southwestern Judah, out in the country. He, he came from a rural setting, um, not in the big city, away from the city. He was from a little town called Morasheth, and he prophesied in the year uh, 437. This is his prophecy, not his lifespan. We don't know when he was born or when he died. To 696 B.C. Now, some of you are, are Bible scholars, and so some of those numbers kind of might light up to you. Um, that we're talking about 737 years before Christ. That's what B.C. means. And in the history of, of we're, we're like 200 years into the divided kingdom. Let's go back to the, real quick. The first king was Saul, and then he was replaced by David. And then David's son was the third king of the United Kingdom. United, not, not the UK, but uh, the, the real UK. The monarchy of, of Israel. They were all together. But uh, when... Solomon died uh, around 930 B.C. Uh, the kingdom divided into north and south. The north uh, was called Samaria or Israel. The south was called Judah. The north had a lot more population. It actually had a lot more natural resources, had a lot going for it up there. However, they were plagued by terrible leadership. They didn't have one decent king who, who followed the Lord all, all of their history. So from 930 about to 730, actually 722 to be exact, the northern tribes, that kingdom fell. Uh, it was conquered, and the, probably the right word to say is it was smashed, smashed to smithereens by Assyria, who came out of Nineveh. And so we're right on the verge of that. And Micah is from the southern kingdom, out in the country, but he writes a book about the coming judgment on Israel and on Judah. And he really addresses this issue. I'm, I'm calling it... Okay. Could you advance me a slide, please? For some reason, my thing took a vacation here. Is there any hope? Now, what I would like to do is have you, if you have a Bible or in the pew Bible in front of you, find the book of Micah. It's in what the last 12 books of the Tanakh, the Old Testament. And it goes Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. We're actually going to look a little bit at, at Micah today. I'm going to do a, a quick reading of, of quite a bit of text here. It's not that much, but uh, enough to get us get our feet wet. To look at the full context of this beautiful promise that we find in Micah 5.2. So allow me to start reading here. I'm going to put in the river of the book. I'm going to put in at chapter 3, verse 9. Okay, um, You can look... Yeah, we'll just uh, we'll just cut in. You know, excuse me, Micah. We don't have time for the whole thing today. 
We'll just put in at verse 9. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. See, that's the, that's the two places. Jacob would be the southern kingdom probably, and then he's thinking about Israel, the northern kingdom. You leaders who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. He's describing a decaying society where the leadership is horrible, the leadership is using crime and and violence to build God's kingdom, Zion and Jerusalem. And the, the rulers will give you a judgment for a bribe. There's crooked justice. And look, it's, it's prof, prophets practice divination for money. I'll tell you what you want if you pay me enough money. If I'm on your uh, payroll, I'll prophesy to you things that will make you happy. Um, and look at verse 11 we're looking at here, verse of chapter 3. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, the Lord, you know, the holy name of God in Hebrew is Yahweh. They lean on Yahweh. So they're putting on all the garments of, oh, we're godly, we're, we're with the Lord, we're with Yahweh. Is not Yahweh in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. See, in the, in the short term, they, they're getting away with it in this drama. The bad guys are winning at this place. The, the, what should be happening has gone crooked, and what should not be happening is going crazy, going really well. Verse 12, Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. So Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. This is a prophecy. It's going to be devastated. And the, I have a slide here, right here. The, um, the mountain of the house, a wooded height. Now, I have here, you can barely see it, but it's kind of shady like that. That's that place in Cambodia called Angkor Wat. I haven't been there, but this is a picture of it. Um, it's a big temple that's completely abandoned, and the trees, the forests have just taken over this temple. And here's a prophecy in Micah saying that this is what's going to happen to God's temple in Jerusalem. Uh, it's not necessarily literally that a forest is going to take over it, uh, because if we go visit God's temple today, we're going to be surprised because we're going to find a Muslim mosque there. It's called the Dome of the Rock. It's not a Hebrew temple where they're worshiping Yahweh who is revealed in the Tanakh. It's the complete polar opposite of that. Um, and honestly, if you ever had a conversation, I have with a Orthodox uh, Jewish rabbi today, this is one of the biggest issues in their life. They have no temple. They can't obey Moses' law. A whole lot of the law of Moses relates to the whole sacrificial system, which requires the temple. And 
We come to the temple, and it's devastated. It's worse than that. It is turned over to a false faith. It's, it's uh, abandoned. It looks like all hope is gone at this point. And yet, look at how the text reads next in chapter 4. It shall come to pass in the latter days. See, there's a, am I a latter day saint? Well, uh, you know, sort of. <laughs> I'm not a Mormon, but uh, we're looking for the latter days, the end of time. How does this drama end? Do the parts come together or is forever? They're a monument to the fallacy of all the prophets, the, the ridiculousness of their prophecies, because the temple is just not even usable at all. It's, but look, look what happens here. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It, it, it's not going to be trampled anymore. It's not going to be a, an abandoned, wooded uh, hill of desertion. It shall be lifted above the hills and peoples shall flow to it. So I've got several points uh, on this slide. First, it says peoples will flow to Jerusalem. At some future time, it's going to be the center of worship for God's people. They'll flow to it. Verse 2, And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways. They're going to come to Jerusalem and say, Lord, please teach me your ways. We want to know what you're saying. Your word is true. Your word is what we thirst for and hunger for. All of the nations of the world will come to God's high holy hill. Now, this is a radical change from what we see now. We don't see this now. This is in the latter days. These are great, great promises to come. That we, let's see verse 2 again. That he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. So my second little bullet here is that the word will flow from Zion. The people will flow to Zion. And now the word will flow from Zion. And now look at the next prophecy. And he shall judge. Who's the he? Well, it doesn't quite reveal it yet, but we're getting to Micah 5.2, this promised coming Messiah. He shall judge between many peoples. Don't you love that? He shall judge. Not, not one individual, not somebody who was appointed under a great controversy and the Senate wrangled over this person for months and you're going to go sit and become one of the nine supremes. I'm all for I love the United States government. I do. And I actually love the Supreme Court. I'm very thankful for it. Um, God bless them. You know, We should pray for them as our dear brother Eugene did. God bless them. And I'm not trying to demean them, but they ain't nothing compared to the Messiah. <laughs> he's chosen by God, and he's a, he's a judge and jury all to himself, and all his judgments are perfect. 
Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. This leader is going to change everything. And it's going to be wonderful. It's going to be fantastic. Um, In the United Nations Plaza, oh, wait a minute, Christ will judge. And then the final thing I already read. I'm sorry, give me the next slide, please. My remote's acting up. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord, that this thing is acting up. (laughs) There's the points I'm making. It will be a great time of peace. They're going to beat their swords into plowshares. And let me read the rest here. It says, verse 4, but they shall sit every man under his vine. This is essentially private property in God's kingdom. In the kingdom of the Messiah, there's going to be your own place. Your own vine, you're going to sit there and the grapes are just going to grow and you'll have your own food and supplies and under his, own, his fig tree and no one shall make them afraid. I don't have to put a fence around my fig tree. I don't have to lock my door. I'm not going to be afraid. There's a, an amazing governor. The government shall be upon his shoulder. This is the Messiah to come. And then I love the last phrase. We're going to get to it, but let me say it right now. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. So I was just saying how in the... uh, I don't know if you've ever been to New York City to the uh, United Nations. It's a very interesting field trip. Um, And this is in the plaza outside of of that institution. A quote from Micah that they will beat their swords into plowshares. The quote is there, and there's this interesting sculpture of a uh, guy, kind of looks like me, you know, really muscular and thin. Uh, <laughs> and he's got a massive sword. That he, he's got a big mallet. You can't quite see the mallet, but he's whacking that thing and making it into a plow, a plowshare. He doesn't need the sword anymore. There's no more war. In Christ's kingdom, there will be no war. He... He is so strong, this Messiah. This little baby, born, frail, dependent. You know, it started, he started as a one cell. Before he was born, they had a gender reveal party. Before he was conceived, they had a gender reveal party. Before he was conceived, they announced his name. <laughs> but God... What if? There is no what if with God. There's no contingency with God. He's all-powerful. He's the sovereign God. There's no what ifs. There's no what could happen. It happens because the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Hallelujah. That's our salvation, you see. It's not based on me. I'm, I'm worthless, you know. I cannot save myself. But he has announced there is a Savior. Anyway, beautiful, beautiful idea. Beat. This will happen. And, you know, again, uh, with all any due respect to the UN, I'm not sure how much is due, but <laughs> they aren't going to do it. 
It's a, it's a sad joke, right? Uh, the UN is not very, very, very ineffective. So how is this all going to happen, God, in your great drama? He says, well, I've, I've spoken this. It will happen. Trust me. The mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. That's why it is certain. That's why it is clear. Uh, that's verse 4. Verse 5. For all the people's walk. This is interesting. I think verse 5 is a little like a time warp. It's not talking about the latter days. It's talking about here and now, for him right now. The situation now is, for all the people's walk, see that's a present tense verb, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of Yahweh, our God, forever and ever. We're going to choose faith in our God because the mouth of the Lord has spoken that in the future, in the latter days, he will demonstrate that this whole history has, in fact, been his story. <laughs> He's written this, and he, we will worship him uh, for the beauty uh, of all that he has done. And, and so that's where we are today. They, you can go ahead and walk uh, each in the name of your own God, but, you know, we're going to walk in the name of our God, the Lord, forever and ever. All right, I'm going to continue reading here. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. See, that's important to notice. The Bible says this over and over and over again. The affliction and the trouble has come from God. He's the sovereign God who brings a curse on those who ignore him, those who go against his law, those who reject him are a part of the curse. It's, it's not as if he says, well, you know, I told you bad things would happen. You know, I, I, I warned you that something bad might happen. No, no, he says, I afflicted you. The one who afflicts us is the one who can save us, the only one. Uh, and he's going to assemble the lame. He's going to comfort them. He's going to, and I borrowed from Psalm 23, he restores my soul. Salvation and restoration are in God. Verse 7, and the lame I will make the remnant. Those are the people who follow him. And those who are cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. Again, a future restoration. Verse 8. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor? Now, what we're doing now is, let's just run through what, what we've covered really quickly. We started out saying, God is promising harsh judgments on Israel and Judah because of their sin. They continue to rebel against him. He is going to bring harsh judgment. He will use the Assyrians and he will use the Babylonians and he calls them both his servants performing his will. 
uh, bringing judgment on his people. But, he says, don't give up hope. I'm, an, I'm the kind of author that will bring this around, and at the end you'll go, oh, that's so wonderful. <laughs> In the latter days, it's going to be better than we could ever even imagine. And he says, so, you know, cheer up, be strong. I'm going to bring healing and restoration to you. That's, that's what is to be a savior. But here and now, verse 9 and following, we're still in the mode of suffering. We're still in the mode of wailing, in pain. Things are still topsy-turvy, and we can't quite understand how we're going to get to the end because there's so much suffering right now. We're like a woman seized in labor. Her, I've had the joy of being there a couple of times, and nine times, actually, Honestly, and, and, and you know, I, I, should I tell you the truth? For us, this is just you know, my truth. The ninth one was almost as hard as the first one. <laughs> Some in the middle were a little easier. <laughs> but in other words, there's that time uh, when a woman goes into transition, uh, getting ready to push, and the baby's like nearly 10 centimeters. Uh, I mean, she's dilated, and, you know, she's ready to go. And there can be this shift in the situation and things get really painful and really difficult. I had a dear old nurse who told me, Pastor, you shouldn't say those sorts of things from the pulpit. Okay, I understand what you're saying. I'm not trying to scare anybody. I'm just reading the Bible. Okay? The Bible is using this as an illustration of some of the suffering you and I will endure. It may come suddenly. It may come unexpectedly it will be difficult and painful this the great scream art brings that forth just what's going on again let me read uh, the word of god now why do you cry aloud is there no king in you well right now no has your counselor perished yes right now he has that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city. You're going to be banished and dwell in the open country and you shall go to Babylon. This is an amazing prophecy at this point because Babylon was not a huge threat right now. Because uh, Ju Judah, southern, they fell in 586, way after 722. You, there you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you saying, let her be defiled and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know. This is so gorgeous, verse 12. They do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan. Who is the author? Who is the Lord of all time and space? It is Yahweh himself. And they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. Remember last week? Jesus predicted his death, burial, and resurrection. And Peter had just, I call it, hit, hit the, the Grand Slam homer in the World Series. He said, you are the Christ. He had just said that. And then Jesus goes on and says this nonsense. You're, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. Oh, and I'm going to rise again the third day. I didn't hear you say that. So Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. Lord, you know, you, you, can't, do, you can't suffer. You're the Messiah. Slay them. 
You know, stand up for yourself here. Um, and, and remember what God, Jesus said to him? He says, you're not thinking the, the ways of God. You're not thinking the ways of God. It's exactly this. They do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Now, verse 13 is kind of interesting. We're getting close to the end. I'm sorry for taxing you if you're feeling taxed. There went out a taxation that all men should be taxed. (laughs) Verse 13. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. They shall beat in pieces many peoples, and shall devote their grain to the Lord, the wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Now muster your troops, O, o daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us with a rod. They strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Now what is he saying here? He's saying, and I, I, this is the way I think this is going. Again, great deliverance is coming. It will come, but currently we're still suffering the effects of the curse. We still are definitely having troubles all over, uh, and we know that God will relieve us from those troubles, but right now in his plan, he's left us here, uh, and what he says is, you, you must strive. I will use you to conquer. Uh, you muster your troops. The response to evil for us right now is not to just give up. Not to give up in despair and say, okay, forget it, I can't handle this, it's overpowering. No, he says, I want you to muster your troops. You know, I will bless you, I will use you to have strength. Uh, The Bible over and over says, we must have the strength of the Lord to face our lives. And so, you know, this is probably ridiculous, but I found this cute little image of these little ducklings climbing the wall. And I, I, I think... Endurance. I know it's a little silly, but you know, in a way, that's where we are. We're still in. We still face overwhelming odds, and we're called to fight. We're called to. We're not called to lay in the ditch, give up. The wall's too big. No, he says, muster your troops. Help is on the way. I'm going to bring huge salvation, but you are not called to sit in an easy chair and wait till it happens. You're called to strive, to work to pray, to preach, to teach, to love, to obey, to forgive, and be forgiven. Our life currently as it is now. Uh, Some people are so excited about the future that they just give up on the present. And that's not what we're ever called to do as Christians. We're to be involved in the present. you might you have people in your life you say well they'll never believe they're they're with this group of people they don't know the thoughts of the lord they do not understand his plan well how does god ever change anybody's heart through the word of god and he calls us to present the word of god lovingly carefully to people in their lives the holy spirit can use that to bring them to salvation to bring them to faith so fight on muster your troops o daughter of troops uh, don't give up and don't lay in the ditch uh, and get washed away, although a duck would not have a problem being washed away. But imagine a duck having a problem with being washed away. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you. 
slightly, that was giggle, giggle worthy. <laughs> we come to the end then. Is there any hope? Like I said before, uh, is it just going to be uh, uh, raised, uh, destroyed, burned out uh, community? And no, of course, we finally get to our verse. Now the sermon begins. That was all introduction. Uh, verse 2, but you... You can do a whole series on the the buts of the Bible. But God, and that's this here. But you, oh Bethlehem, Ephrata. You know, linguistically, uh, Bethlehem means house of bread, and Ephrata means something like fruitful. You know, you're you're a baker's town, but you're fruitful. Uh, Out of you, oh Bethlehem, Ephrata, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. We don't even count you. You're a, you're a one-stop-light town. You're nothing to be considered. It's so unlikely in God's story that this will happen this way. It can't happen this way. No. But yes, God, this amazing author, uh, will solve the problem in the way he's decided to solve it. Uh, from you, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be the ruler. You know, finally, we'll have a, a ruler of whom we can be completely proud, of wh- to whom we can worship. We, we're called to worship this leader. You know, thank God we don't have to worship our leaders. They did, of course, in other cultures at other times. Uh, but thank the Lord we don't worship our president. Uh, any president, uh, thank the Lord for that. But th- this ruler will be worthy of worship. I mean, so, that's so exciting. The perfect leader. Uh, never, uh, never a mistake. It says, th- he'll come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. I already commented on that. It's out of the the least likely place the Messiah is coming. So my conclusion is this, two parts. You probably can't see that quite. I think you could. God's plan is dramatic and and exciting. The God who continually paints sunrises and sunsets in blotches and streaks, everyone's unique, right? Like the retina of an eye, just gorgeous and dramatic, don't you love it when that moment, the sun, it's, it's going down, it's coming, it's coming, it's going down, and then whoop, it goes down. It's so gorgeous, is it not? That's the same God who tells us the Messiah has come and is come. So here's my bullet points to send us home with. For now, we should be people of expectations. I probably should have said great expectations. We should be people who really are optimistic, not negative. Don't be so involved with the current political situation that you're just depressed. You know, let it push you toward, wow, I'm looking forward to Jesus. <laughs> I'm looking forward to the Christ, the Messiah. Hallelujah. It's coming. And we should know that suffering is inevitable. It's clearly a part of God's plan. Yet we also know that God is God. And he has promised deliverance. And then uh, thirdly, trouble has a cause. 
a purpose and a solution. The Bible presents this beautiful reality that time is not only cyclical, there are cycles discernible, but it is actually linear. It's going somewhere. (laughs) You've probably heard me say this, but I think uh, the movie uh, Polar Express is fun to watch, but it's so, so tragic because the conductor says to convince the little boy to get on the train, he says, it doesn't matter where the train goes. What matters is if you get on it. Like, what? <laughs> okay, now I've traveled a little bit, and for example, <laughs> I've been in New York City, and I've been on the subway. And, you know, it matters a great deal which way the subway's going. (laughs) You want to end up in, you know, the Bronx or the Battery? Which way are you going, north or south? It it ultimately matters where the train is going. Absolutely it matters. And and in the Word of God, we are to call upon, verse 12, we're to make it opposite. We are to know the thoughts of the Lord. And we are to understand His plan. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Trouble has a cause, the curse, a purpose to push us to Christ, and a solution in Jesus Christ alone. And then finally, on a global scale and on a personal scale, we trust the coming Messiah. Lord, thank you for Micah 5.2. Fill us with a thrill today to worship you out of Bethlehem, Ephrata. One is coming. And we know he came and suffered and died for our sins and rose again in victory, uh, creating the, the covenant in his blood, which we enjoy. And yet we know the drama still continues, and we're looking forward to future chapters. We don't know what is in the middle between us and those two words, the end. Uh, But we trust you, O Lord, and strengthen us to face uh, the ups and the downs in faith. Amen.